Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 8. Can I ask you to turn there tonight? We're going to be um, camping out, if you will, uh, with Ezekiel at the Temple Mount. And it's not a pleasure cruise, to be sure, but there's much to be learned and much to take home. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gaze both into the past, into the present, the condition of our hearts, Lord, into your many promises for the future. We pray we'd be open and submissive to your holy word in Jesus' name. Uh, Skip tonight is a teaching at Calvary Chapel of Fort Lauderdale. He'll be back next week and continue uh, our journey line upon line. And uh, back this weekend along as, as along with, as Nate said, with, um, with Phil Wickham. But here in Ezekiel chapter 8, um, we are taken on a journey with Ezekiel. He was in captivity with Daniel in, in the first and second waves of captives in Babylon. And God remarkably grabbed him by the scruff of the neck, really the, the top knot of the hair, and took him to Jerusalem. And he, he has shown an incredible vision. And we're given the privilege of having the curtain open for us briefly on some very amazing spiritual mechanisms. Don't miss this tonight. It, it takes some concentration, it, it takes some focus, some attention to detail, but don't miss what God has for you in these passages tonight. Let's set the, the scene. Uh, remember now, the purpose of Israel is very specific on earth and has been since Genesis chapter 12. Um, they are God's people. They weren't chosen because they are special. They are special because they were chosen by God. They were a stiff-necked people, a peculiar people, and are. But God chose them, as is his sovereign right to do, as his covenant people, as a place to display his character and his nature. Now, it's no wonder that God needed an accurate canvas to paint on, because the world was pretty confused about the nature of God by this time. I mean, have you seen Diana of Ephesus? I mean, dude, she, a lot of strange pagan gods going on in the ancient world. Have you seen some of the Greek and Roman gods? So God needed a way to say, wait a minute, that's not me. Let me show you what I'm really like. A lot of misconceptions were afoot about the real nature and character of God, the real one true God. He needed a place also to have a reflection of his plan for mankind and ultimately a place to reveal his Messiah, saving the saving Messiah. And so that became Israel. Genesis chapter 12, the I wills of Genesis chapter 12. But we need to pull, I think we have the luxury of time tonight, to pull our camera back a little bit further and, and try to get a grasp from God's standpoint of what he sees and what he saw when he looks down upon earth. Have you ever wondered that? What must God think? What must he, re- and I, I recognize he knows everything in advance, but yet he is experiencing our life with us. He is seeing the trials and travails, uh, the suffering and the sacrifice, the violence and the villains that goes on on earth today. And so what must he think? And I, I picked up a book 
uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago over at Borders, one of those coffee table pictorial books that they have, you know, and it was about the history of warfare. And it, it traced the history of weaponry and of, of uniforms and the development uh, of different kinds of, of, of weapons for warfare. It was very well done. It, it went from the Egyptians all the way through the modern Iraqi war. And it was, it was fascinating to see the determination and the genius and the, the, the industrial skill and design that mankind has put consistently into being, finding better ways to maim and kill his brother. Now, I, I know there is, are just wars. There's a need for national defense. I recognize that. But I thought, what must God think when he sees all of this energy and resources and determination to make better and faster and more vicious weapons? To slice and to kill and to maim and destroy and to burn and do all these manner of things to our brothers and sisters. And man is so ingenious when it comes to that. Uh, I looked at the landmines. It wasn't enough to step on a landmine and blow the person up. They, they developed a landmine that you stepped on, and then it popped up to waist high, and then it exploded to a shrapnel to do the, the most possible damage to the human body. I wonder, what does the Lord think when he sees his children developing this kind of weaponry? And then I thought further about it and I saw that how it was pretty much the same kind of weapons from the year 3000 BC all the way up for 4,500 years. Basically, it was just, you know, variations on swords and, and arrows and, and, and knives and they developed some artillery that they, they, they threw rocks and things like that and mechanized things and the introduction of the horse changed the face of warfare uh, some. But basically, it was the same kind of weapons for 4,500 years. Just try to slice as many people as you possibly could and stab them or get an arrow in them. And then all of a sudden, the introduction of gunpowder about the 15th or 16th century, that really literally exploded on the scene. And that really changed the whole face of of warfare, didn't it? But yet it stayed kind of retarded in in that condition for a couple hundred more years. They had better and, and, and faster rifles and guns and Gatling guns and things like that. But all of a sudden... They found the internal combustion engine, and they developed the tanks around the 1900 period. But something dramatic happened, and get this point, I think you'll see where I'm going with this. 1902, Kitty Hawk in the Carolinas, the Wright brothers fly the first plane, 20 seconds, about 100 yards or so, or something like that. Very, very short flight. 1902, get this, 35 years later, 30, really 38 um, years later, roughly, the Japanese are preparing to take off from aircraft carriers in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Just over 30 years later, they've taken that, that airplane engine, and all of a sudden they're able to attack Pearl Harbor from the middle of the ocean. What has happened here? Things have been rapidly accelerated, have they not? Get this. That's impressive, but get this. July 16th, this is right in our backyard. July 16th, 1945. The first nuclear weapon has exploded right here in New Mexico and tested. It took 30 years to get a plane for it to really be able to do aircraft warfare. Do you know how long it took them to explode the first nuclear weapon? 21 days. August, first week of August, 1945, Hiroshima, 100,000 people pretty much incinerated. Now, I know that was a just war. It prevented the invasion of Tokyo and loss of many American lives. But do you see the principle here? And the next one was exploded four days later. Now, here's a fascinating point. 
That was 65-some years ago. And since that time, there hasn't been a nuclear weapon detonated in anger on the face of the earth. Amazing. Remarkable restraint, don't you think? Now, it hasn't been because they haven't been developing them. That's for certain. The members of the nuclear club has been proliferating. And so there are very unsavory members running around the world today. In fact, the Russians developed a bomb that had 10,000 times the firepower of the first bomb little boy dropped in Hiroshima. They killed almost 100,000 people. 10,000 times the firepower. And yet, although mankind has never developed a weapon he hasn't used, we've not used that because God has his hand on the thermostat. And Revelation does indicate someday those weapons will be unleashed as mankind would like to do. But although mankind can't wait to use them, God chooses when they're used. So what do you think the Lord's perspective is on how we treat our fellow man? I can tell you from Isaiah, the day is coming in his heart where he'll see it portrayed that they'll beat their swords into plowshares. And listen, they will study war no more. God is looking forward to that day. He sees it coming. We think this is the way things are always going to be. Not so. We live in a very temporary, disposable condition. And God's going to change things, we hope, very soon. So that's the position that Israel was in. In this scarred, marred, fallen world, they were elevated on this platform, this stage, to be God's reflection. And they generally failed miserably. Oh, there were some brief bright moments. We know what Moses did at the Red Sea, that one seminal time when when God intruded in such a way and said, never forget how faithful I was at the Red Sea with the Egyptians. Um, they, They said, no, but we want a king like the other nations have. Although God wanted them to be distinct and peculiar. Oh no, we want a king. Okay, here's Saul. And even out of that, that God raised up David. And then there was a few good kings, Uzziah. There was the, the pinnacle of Solomon when he was, was wise and godly. There was Asa and there was Hezekiah and just a, a few others where Israel just approached the potential that God had for them. But generally, they failed miserably. I want to give you that background to lead us up to diving into Ezekiel chapter 8 tonight and realize that what, what Ezekiel was plunged into was a cesspool of idolatry at the very place that God intended his glory to reside. I mean, at that temple mount where the, the temple had been built by Solomon, the, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God came down when Solomon prayed so much so he couldn't stand up. And it covered that place, and it dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And you know what that was to typify and symbolize for the Israeli people, the very presence of Him. That's where He lived. And there's so much, it's so rich with with content, we don't have the time to develop it. But we know this, and in verse 4, Ezekiel's given a vision for the glory. Do you see it there? God wants to set the stage, my glory is there upon my people. His glory is preeminent. But the contrast is very harsh and strong in verse 5, where we find public and general idolatry. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes up toward the north. And there, north of the altar, was the image of jealousy in the entrance. One of the kings of Israel had the audacity to publicly erect an idol image right outside of the temple, at the northern gate. 
And God said, Ezekiel, look at this. They're forbidden to do this, and it's drawing me to jealousy, and they are publicly and brazenly defying me and presenting a God that is not God. And it was an awful moment. So we begin what I call one of Israel's darkest hours. As a sequential level of idolatry is unveiled to Ezekiel, we see the heart of wickedness that resided in the Israeli people where God wanted his Shekinah glory to rest. And we, we must also recognize this dark hour cast a long shadow today. That the church is not absent of idolatry. The New Testament is full of examples. And frankly, so are our lives. Full of examples of tolerating idolatry. And God is not pleased by that. This shadow reaches into our church and further into our hearts. We need to understand the roots of idolatry. Idolatry, by definition, is slandering God's character. Idolatry is is assuming God to be something other than what he truly is. It's an erroneous or unworthy thought about God, a belief system, anything that is less than the one true God as revealed by his Holy Spirit in his inerrant word. It is idolatry if you have manufactured a God you can't trust. That's why a lack of faith is sin. Because you have created a God who can't fulfill his promises for you. And now you take those promises upon yourself with worry, stress, anxiety, and ultimately depression. Because you can't handle the job. But he can, if you let the one true God be in charge. Idolatry is to think anything less about God than what is true. I want that to sink in. Idolatry is to think anything less about God than what is true. And that dictates we must know what is true. There is doctrinal idolatry, very rampant today, because people aren't properly informed about the full counsel of God's Word illuminated by His Holy Spirit. And they hold false concepts. They teach false doctrine. They lead people astray. That's idolatry as sure as the god Bacchus is to the Greeks. Idolatry can exist in the church as much as in a pagan temple. Idolatry is a perversion of who God is in any way, shape, or form. We must be very careful, the Bible says, about how we handle the precepts of truth, how we represent God to each other and to the world. It's no light thing. See, doctrinal idolatry is presenting an untrue picture of the true God. That's libel. When they knew God, Romans one twenty one says, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain and proud in their imagination. Mark that word with me. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. When you make God fallible, when you make God unsure, when you make him anything less than what he is, that is libel. You are spreading a lie about the truth. And so idolatry has many ugly faces. Man has always, it seems, wanted to make God 
into his own image. So idolatry can also be worshiping the true God in a false way. Did you get that? There can be sensual worship. If you base your worship around feelings, if you demand to feel God, you are worshiping him sensually. If, if, you, if you really dictate how deep you've gone in, in the Lord by how you feel and whether you have a pleasant sensation and whether you sense the Lord, you aren't worshiping him in spirit and truth as Jesus demanded. You're worshiping God sensually based on your five senses. And that's forbidden. Now, if, as a function of walking in spirit and truth and really encountering God, there is some sensual overload, so, so be it. But that cannot be our barometer for really having worshipped God. And so many people say, oh, I just didn't feel the Lord. We are to walk with him despite feelings. We walk by faith and not by sight. Many are involved in this kind of worship, I'm afraid. And thirdly, idolatry is not only slandering God's character, not only worshipping the true God in the wrong way, we can also worship things other than God, can't we? This is a more familiar brand of idolatry. But these other kinds are just as deadly, just as potent, and just as common. And so uh, we can worship images, we can worship angels, we can worship demons, we can worship dead men. There are a million people on earth today worshiping Haile Selassie, the dead king of Ethiopia. They think he's the creator of the earth. The whole Rastafarian movement is based around that. There, There are people worshiping angels. There are people worshipping Mary. There are people worshipping dead popes. There are people in the Protestant church who think God is too small. There are people in the charismatic fringes who think he's out of control. These are all doctrinal kinds of heretical idolatry. We must be thoroughly rooted in the one true God, the full counsel of God's exposed words. So, slandering God's character is idolatry, holding beliefs of him that are not worthy of him is idolatry. We need to relinquish them and get a grasp on the one true and real living Jehovah God. This has been an issue from the very first to this very day. Leviticus 26.1, it was commanded by God, you will not make any graven image. You shall not conduct yourself with idols and all the rest. And the history of Israel is replete with this broken commandment. Right up to our text tonight. And it's not going to end. From the very first in Leviticus to the very last in Revelation 9.20, listen to this. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of, of the work of their hands that they should not worship demons, idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And that makes the point that idolatry is never an improvement on the real thing, ever. They create these gods that are dumb, the Bible says, and they become like them. Don't you love that story about the Philistines when the Ark of the Covenant is stolen and they take it into the temple of Dagon? Every morning they wake up and here's Dagon. And they got, you know, crazy glue his nose back on. They put him back up. And the next morning, the glory of God knocks him over. Get this. Idolatry is never a step up. It's never an improvement on God. Why? God can't be improved upon. You can't, you can't beat perfection. You can't beat the absolute zenith of everything that is. 
And it's idolatry to even think we can conceive fully of him, his mechanisms of salvation. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. And people who get up and say they have the whole thing all figured out, that's a form of intellectual idolatry. Because if you can hold God in your mind and grasp him fully, it makes you equal with him. You can think as wild a thought as you can go, as far as you want to go in your mind, and God is deeper still. He's bigger, he's larger, he's better, he's more perfect, he's more graceful and loving than we can even wildly imagine. And we'll spend eternity discovering the levels and the depths of his grace and his love. Well, it's going to go on. We, we can stop it in our life. We can stop it in our church. We can be a part of stopping in our families because the results of idolatry are very, very grave. We'll see here eventually, it drives the glory of God off the very temple mount. It separates you from God ultimately. Deuteronomy 32.21, they provoked, provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They moved me to anger by their foolish idols. Let me say this by observation and experience. It's not easy to anger God. He is graceful. He told, told uh, Moses, I have grace and I, I, I'm forgiving and I, I go on and on from the fathers. And, and, and he ex- explained his nature. Idolatry angers God. Chronic idolatry will cause a rift in our relationship with God. And those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. That's something. Well, in the first stage here in, in verse 5, Ezekiel C. is an eyewitness to bold, public, general idolatry, an image erected on the very Temple Mount. But verse 6 tells us, worse is yet to come. Look at it with me. Verses 7 through 12, we can label it secret sexual idolatry. Because Ezekiel and now we are made privilege to seeing what goes on in the dark chambers of these men's hearts. He is exposed to 70 men. They represent the Sanhedrin of Israel. That's the number of men who were the leaders, the elders of Israel, who ruled the land. And these men were involved in spiritual service. They had incense, a representation of prayer and of spiritual uh, behavior there in the temple. And yet, as it's unveiled to Ezekiel, he went and saw there every sort of creeping thing abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. Part of it was a cult of beast worship. Part of it was pornography and a phallic cult. All of it was abominable to God. And it wasn't just graffiti on the walls of the temple, people. Will you lock in on this, please? What God exposed to Ezekiel, what he wants to expose to us, this was the interior of these men's hearts. He was taking a journey where only the Spirit of God can take you between spirit and soul into the very chamber of imagery, the very core of these individuals. And what God showed him was ugly and wicked and depraved. And they had allowed, it says, all of the idols of Israel portrayed all around the walls. They were given over to these things. And what's remarkable, even though the interior was corrupt, They were still conducting spiritual service. And so it's possible to sit in spiritual lectures once or twice a week and listen to Bible studies and engage yourself in even giving and serving and all kinds of piety on the outside while the inside is full of all wickedness and abominable things in the sight of God. 
Jesus said this is true. He said, out of the issues of the heart is what defiles man, not the behavior of the exterior. And so this is a sobering moment, a dark moment for Ezekiel and for Israel. But it's a, it's a sobering warning to us as well. Because this was a representation of what goes on and what can go on in the heart of even religious and so-called spiritual people. Uh, these were 70 men. They were praying in the temple. They deceived themselves, it says in verse 12, the Lord does not see. And they engaged in these pornographic behaviors, thinking that because it was behind closed doors, that it wasn't open to God's scrutiny. Untrue. And it leads us to two very important topics, the imagination and the appetite. The imagination and the appetite. This is the problem, Paul, that God diagnosed before the flood. He said to these people in Noah's era that their imaginations of their hearts were only continually evil all the time. The same principle, completely given over to depravity in the inner man. And it was just a hundred years later, after the flood, the very same thing was true on the plains of, ba- of Babel, where God, the Holy Spirit and, and the, God the Father and the Son convened and said, they're right back at it. The imaginations of their heart are continually evil. And that's a thread that runs, a black thread that runs all the way through Scripture, right to the very end as we've seen. Fortunately, there's another thread, another stream, a scarlet thread of God's redemptive plan to, to resolve this unresolvable issue in our hearts. Jeremiah said, This evil people, which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their hearts, walk after other gods, serve them, worship them, which is good for nothing. Now, we don't really use the word imagination as much. A more common word in our culture is fantasy. We have fantasy lives. We fantasize about things. We fantasize about experiences. The Bible calls it walking in the vanity of your own mind. And we, we have fantasy lives about what we're going to do. We have fantasy lives about what we should have done. Oh, what I should have said. How I should have put them in their place. We walk around dejected and depressed with our head down because we're listening to an endless loop tape of some kind of fantasy of revenge and bitterness. And it never ends. We can put an end to that cycle. God the Holy Spirit will give us the power to do that, to discard that worthless loop tape and have a, a freshness of life in the inner man or woman. Psychologists say we, the, the average person has about 10,000 distinct thoughts per day. Now, I realize for men they're repetitive, me hungry, but in, in large part. But there are many opportunities to think various things tangentially and have the opportunity to um, fantasize about positive things. The Bible calls that meditation. The Bible calls, calls that selah, thinking upon these things. The Bible says, continually give yourself wholly to pure thoughts, pure words, pure music. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, that's how he is. It's real simple. There's no mystery about our behavior. What you're thinking today is what you're going to do this weekend. What you're thinking, what you're planning now in depth is what you're going to do this summer. And we begin to live them out, and we simply go through the motions of what our heart has already devised. Uh, They say that half of the medical beds in America are occupied by people with mental disturbances. Less than half of the people really have physical ailments. 
And it's no wonder, because the American thought life is under assault and has been like no other generation or culture ever. The opportunity to be exposed to evil and wickedness and, and, and slickly devised uh, promotions to cause you to do things that are counterproductive and even destructive, unbelievable. It's everywhere. No wonder our thought lives are almost out of control. We're mentally disturbed. That's what they want. They want us to behave in a counterproductive fashion and do all sorts of things like that. This is where we are defiled. This is where the issues of life come from. Um, all the fantasies we have are not just about physical things. They're about emotional, they're about mental, and they need to be about spiritual. Now, how, if you have a, a teenage daughter, for example, how do you know if she's engaged in, let's say, spiritual idolatry? There's a couple of real quick ways that really don't involve invasion of privacy. Go into her bedroom and see what's on her walls. Pick up her iPod and see what's on her playlist. Pick up her phone and see who's on her top five. And you'll find out what's on the walls of her heart. Let's ask the next logical question. What is on the walls of our hearts, parents? What do we tack up in our chambers of imagery? What do we allow men into our homes? What kind of images literally are allowed to be piped in to our televisions? to our computer screens, to our movies. And those kind of images will ultimately be played out in our lives and the lives of our children. So evil imagination creates an appetite for idolatry. That's a principle you should write down. Evil imagination creates an appetite for idolatry. Appetites are interesting things. We're all born with them for all sorts of things, primarily uh, food and self-preservation, things of that nature. But do you know your appetites can be controlled? Uh, they also can be corrupted. Witness the explosion of junk food in America. Um, witness smoking. No one comes out of the womb ready for a cigarette. It has to be a learned behavior. You have to corrupt your appetite for breathing in order to smoke cigarettes. I know that. I did it. My first cigarette was a cool cigarette, 22 years old. almost killed me. I was hacky and ca- I'll never do this again. But all my friends in the radio station were smoking, so ultimately, different social functions, gradually, pressure, stress, I started smoking. Within a year, I would have strangled Bambi for a cigarette. I, I tell you what, I went, from, I went from, from turning green with that cigarette to I'd, do any, I'd rather smoke than eat. Couldn't imagine having a cup of coffee without a cigarette. And God delivered me from that. But my appetite had been corrupted. And it, you, but the good news is your appetites can also be informed. And they can be reformed. So if we've developed appetites for idolatry when it comes to things that are perverse in nature, the good news is God is there to help you change. To help you uh, kick the habit. To help you clean up your, the walls of your room. And we'll talk about that as we close tonight. But your, um, your appetite, like your conscience, needs to be informed what to do by the Word of God. And you can, with the power of the Holy Spirit, take control of those areas of your life and no longer be victims, but be victors. Well, the second level of idolatry is in verse 13. And Ezekiel moves on and God says, well, worse is yet to come. Because in verse 14, we find women gone wrong. He finds in the temple women weeping 
over the god Tammuz. Now, Tammuz was a Babylonian god who supposedly was killed by a, a, a goat or a boar and was resurrected in the springtime. And, and they're weeping on the very temple precincts for this Babylonian deity, this pagan idol. And God says, look at this. It, it's unbelievable what's going on in my temple. And I think of my first trip to the Temple Mount, and back then you were allowed to go into the Golden Dome, that mosque. You had to pay to do it and take off your shoes, and you walk into that space, and it's, un- it's otherworldly. And they have the rock where supposedly Mohammed stepped off to, uh, to heaven from. And the one thing that really struck me, though, more than even that, the, the prayer going on and the, the, the Islamic uh, functions, all around the outside of the rim, there were women just muttering, Sitting, sitting on their prayer shawls and just, just this bizarre uh, droning going on. And I think of that, and then I think of today, if you go there, although you can't go in for the most part as, as tourists uh, generally, uh, if, if the prayer call goes off, the Islamic prayer call goes off in the, um, in the mosque, all of a sudden everybody stops and pulls out their prayer rug and, 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 and bows towards Mecca and, and puts their face to the ground, which is pretty much precisely what is happening here. And I was doing a little research this week about the Islamic script that goes around the outside of the, of the, the Dome of the Rock. And I'd, I'd heard in the past that it says, God is not begotten, neither does he begot or begat people. In other words, there are no sons of God. But I did some further research, and it actually says in Islamic script, Jesus, the son of Mary, is only a messenger of God, and God has no sons. He is sovereign. I mean, why are they bothering to disprove Christianity at the very, one of the, the third most holy Islamic site? It'd be like us putting up a banner, Muhammad is not a true prophet. Why would we do that? It's pretty much what they have engraved around their major mosque in Jerusalem. Interesting. Point being this, what Ezekiel saw, the defilement of the temple, is still going on today. It's taking place in Jerusalem. And if you watch the wall.org tonight on your computer, you'll see that beautiful golden dome. Don't be impressed by it. Be grieved by it, because God is. It's a defilement of what he intended. It's a rejection of who he is. It's heresy about what he intends to do. And it won't be there forever. The day will come he'll cleanse that temple. He'll replace his glory. But that time is not yet. Because verse 15, after all this, God says to Ezekiel, you see that, son of man? There's worse yet to come. So we have seen general public idolatry in the image outside the temple. We have seen leadership idolatry by the 70 men of the Sanhedrin. We have seen that sexual secret sin in their innermost image chambers. And then we've seen the women weeping for a false pagan deity. He says, how bad can it get? And he takes them between the door to the temple and the altar. The altar of sacrifice and the door leading to the Holy of Holies. And there are 25 Jewish leaders there with their back to the temple facing east. They have their back turned on Jehovah. 25 could represent the high priest and 24 courses of priests who would serve at the temple. And these men had gone so deep into apostasy they had their back turned on God and they were facing the sun, facing the east. And God was so deeply grieved and we don't have time to completely go into the thought, but I, in chapters 10 and 11, 
we see as a result of this, these four levels of apostasy, listen now, the departure of the glory of God. He physically, visibly, and tangibly leaves the, the, the Temple Mount where he had been installed in the era of Solomon, and slowly, reluctantly, he leaves the Temple. Well, these are principles, I think, of four levels of outrageous idolatry that provoke God to anger. And they're not ancient history. They're as current as our hearts are today. Because we are susceptible to the very same thing. A public display of the rejection of God, sexual and secret idolatry, false doctrine, heretical teachings about God are rampant all over the world today. One man wrote a book called Idols on the College Campus of America. He, he identified three different levels of idolatry that are so current and so common. Humanism, eye-centered theology. Materialism, the worship of mammon. And then sexual idolatry, the worship of Bacchus, the Greek god of, of pleasure. And these things, our young people very often are given over to, but there's no age limit. Well, here's the take-home from this text tonight. First of all, we are meant to be a vessel. We are not a blank slate because we are a fallen, fallen race, but we are meant to be a vessel. And God looks down upon us, as I said, and what does he see? He sees many people carrying sin in that vessel, and you were never meant to carry sin. And so God resolved that issue and forgave your sin. You can be cleansed of it completely and fully. And if you've never done that, you'll have the opportunity in a few minutes to do so. You weren't meant to carry sin. It scars you. It harms you. It mars you. It disfigures you at every level. Uh, you're not meant for merchandise. Jesus said that very clearly. You can't serve God and mammon or materialism. Uh, you're not meant for emptiness either. You're not meant for pleasure, primarily, your own and you're not meant for evil. What are you meant for then? The human heart is meant for one thing. and It'll never be satisfied until it contains it. You are meant to carry around the light burden but the heavy privilege of God's glory. No one else on, on, on earth or in the universe has been given that privilege. Angels don't. Animals don't. Demons don't. Only mankind has been given the opportunity to bear the glory of God. Only we are made in His image. So could it be that although slander and libel of God's nature is the worst kind of idolatry, is a close second when we are less than God meant us to be, when we take ourselves for less than we are intended to be, not the crown of creation, not the apple of His eye, not, not the highest and best when all things were good, when he made man? Well, I think that's the case. Recognize this. As we look back on this text, we see that God could have unilaterally come in and smoked the Temple Mount. He, he could have just thrown a fireball and brimstone down and just destroyed it, and he certainly would have deserved it. But he didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He went and got a servant. He said, Ezekiel, let me show you what's going on here. Look what I have to deal with. And that shows me God wants a partnership, even when he's grieved. He wants us to be heartbroken over what breaks his heart and rejoicing over what makes him glad. He wants you to be a partner. 
He could do it unilaterally, as I say. But he's inviting you into the family business. He wants you to be a partner, a a co-laborer with him. And so we see we have that opportunity to be a co-worker with him. And then we see that idolatry is progressive. It starts with, with outside the temple, and it moves all the way through the entire system. The whole body of Israel was corrupt from the very heart. And we see that that is is true in the present day. And we find that God was reluctant to judge. He said, Ezekiel, look at this. And then we find as the Shekinah glory left, it went from the Holy of Holies between the cherubim to the door of the temple. It went to, to outside the temple and finally the Mount of Olives before it would leave perhaps waiting for one of the priests to plead for the the glory of God to return, but no one did. And so Ichabod, the glory of God, had departed. Their sin had amputated them from their God. But though God is reluctant to judge, he's quick to restore. As you go through the rest of this text in, in chapters 10 and 11, you find finally God says, look, if they'll just come back to me, if they'll just return to me, yes, I'll send them into captivity, I'll discipline them, I have to treat them sternly because they have so chronically disobeyed, but if they'll just come back to me, do you see the heart of God? And so, where are you tonight? What would happen if our hearts were portrayed on the screen? What if someone was given privilege to see what's on the innermost chamber of our being? What would be there? Would there be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Or do we need to take action? Perhaps some need to go and tear down some post-it notes about revenge, some bitterness, some things you hope to do to somebody else. Perhaps you need to tear down some pictures of people that are unprofitable. Maybe in a more current context, you need to erase some of your hard drive. You need to throw away some email addresses of people that aren't helpful, whose relationships are counterproductive to you as well. You need to defriend some Facebook people. You need to cleanse the walls and put up new pictures of positive fantasies, spiritual meditations, adventures you hope to have with God, people you're praying for, people that you are, you are engaging in God's labor with. You need a new set of walls. You need to refurbish and redecorate the innermost chamber of your heart. When you do, as you begin to do that, you'll find God fully engaging with you because he he wants the best for you. Just as devaluing the nature of God is never an improvement, engaging in spiritual, sexual, secret idolatry is never an upgrade for you. God always has the best for, for you from this day on. Now, it may require... Radical action. As we look at great reformers in the Bible, you look at Josiah. He took over the kingship of Israel. He tore things down. He broke the groves. He tore up the altars. You look at Elijah. He had to destroy the priests of Baal. You look at at Moses with the golden calf. He ground up the calf and made them drink it. And Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple. And so radical action may be required, not necessarily physically on the outside, but you might need to take radical control of your thought life, turn off certain avenues that are harming you and ultimately will influence and infect and pollute your family. And don't procrastinate. That action needs to happen rapidly. You may not be in the condition of of these Sanhedrin, these men who are completely given over. Maybe you're just victimized by kind of a spiritual dry rot. 
just kind of a subtle corruption around the edges, just not really feeling fresh living water flowing through your life, still going through the motion, giving spiritual lip service, but knowing something's not quite in harmony with the Spirit of God, you can take action tonight and cooperate with God. and He'll cleanse you. He'll purify you because though your sins have been as scarlet, He'll make them as white as snow. And no matter what kind of sin we've engaged in, His love and His grace is deeper still if you'll just take action. Now Jesus said through the, through the Apostle John, little children, keep yourself from idols. Isn't that touching? Just keep, it, it's, it's His advice. It's His counsel. Paul's a little more forthright in, in 1 Corinthians. He said, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run from it. There's no positive outcome to your engaging with any of these kinds of evils. But to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth is what God intends for you and your family. Let's pray. Lord, tonight as we pause before you, we are so grateful that your spirit warns us of impending evil. As you give us these negative examples, Lord, of what can take place in a heart that deviates from the narrow path, help us, Lord, to be quick to respond, to recognize, God, when we have taken an exit and we have, we have meddled with things, God, to our own hurt. We ask for forgiveness right now, Lord. And we ask for the power of your Spirit to cooperate with you for purity in our innermost man for cleansing our thought lives, Lord, and and casting down vain idols, Lord, that have caused us to think of you in, in, in terms less than true about your nature. I know, Lord, your Spirit is speaking to people right now about things large and small. You're, you are devoted, God, to the very best for your children. Help us, Lord, to cooperate with you, to repent quickly, Lord, and then to recognize we are fully forgiven, and not to walk in shame or guilt, but to walk in victory and power. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.